Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is good to be with you another Friday evening, reflecting into Scripture for Sunday, in particular the Gospel. And this Sunday, we have the opportunity to reflect upon the closing verses to the Gospel of Matthew, because it is Ascension Sunday. And when we talk about the Ascension, what do we mean? Quite simply, we are talking about the entry of Jesus' humanity into divine glory in God's heavenly domain, 40 days after his resurrection. This is the Sunday that we celebrate today. Now, what is this all about? Well, let's jump right into today's gospel. Again, if you have your Bibles out there, go to the close of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20, the commissioning of the disciples. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the close of the age. So, Matthew's gospel for the solemnity of the ascension presents us with this this majestic final scene in Galilee that brings the evangelist's account to a fitting conclusion. In perfect harmony with his presentation of Jesus, Matthew has chosen to end his gospel not with a, a kind of visual or pictorial representation of our Lord's new heavenly power, nor with sharing bread or touching his body, but with a profoundly simple scene featuring the words of Jesus, the great teacher and master. We can break today's uh, verses into two sections or two parts. Uh, first, the appearance of the risen Christ to the disciples in Galilee, there in uh, verses 16 through the first part of 18, uh, as it was promised in the earlier part of the chapter, and the instruction of Jesus, which concludes the gospel, those last three verses. The disciples go to the mountain Jesus had commanded, a reminder of three earlier mountains huh? for the gospel of Matthew. Uh, of course, the mountain where our Lord gives his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 to 7, uh, the high mountain where he was transfigured, and he gives us his passion prediction there in chapter 16, in the beginning of chapter 17, and of course the Mount of Olives. Now, 
Pope Benedict XVI, Emeritus Benedict XVI, offers us, I thought, a very important reflection on the mountain in his first volume, Jesus of Nazareth. And now in this section of Jesus of Nazareth, he is reflecting upon the transfiguration, but in doing so, he just offers up this uh, beautiful commentary to the mountain and, and what the mountain represents. So I thought what I would do is, before we get into some of these verses, is get into what Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI has to say. He says this, Once again, the mountain serves as it did in the Sermon on the Mount and in the night spent by Jesus in prayer as the locus of God's particular closeness. Once again, we need to keep together in our minds the various mountains of Jesus' life. The mountain of the temptation, the mountain of his great preaching, the mountain of his prayer, the mountain of the transfiguration, the mountain of his agony, the mountain of the cross, and finally, the mountain of the risen Lord, where he declares in total antithesis to the offer of the world dominion through the devil's power, all power in heaven and on earth is given to me. But in the background, we also catch sight of Sinai, Horeb, Moriah, the mountains of Old Testament revelation. They are all at one and the same time mountains of passion and of revelation. They also refer in turn to the Temple Mount, where revelation becomes liturgy. When we inquire into the meaning of the mountain, the first point is, of course, the general background of mountain symbolism. The mountain is the place of ascent, not only outward, but also inward ascent. It is a liberation from the burden of everyday life, a breathing in of the pure air of creation. It offers a view of the broad expanse of creation and its beauty. It gives one an inner peak to stand on and an intuitive sense of the Creator. So, yeah, we can well imagine why our Lord chooses the mountain to disclose uh, both his passion and revelation, as uh, Benedict XVI talks about there. Uh, the mountain is very important, and really, it calls us, my dear listeners, to really think about the ways in which we are called to withdraw into retreat. Benedict XVI, as well as Pope Francis and all the popes, have really encouraged the importance of going on retreat. And, and by retreat, I don't mean going into the backyard and, and reading a book. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about getting away going into the mountains and really breathing in that air that Benedict XVI was talking about. So there's, a, there's an implicit challenge here that we have in sacred scripture every time we read about a mountain, and that is to, to remind ourselves the importance of withdrawing, going on retreat. Each and every one of us need to do that for our own spiritual well-being. So with that... Let us consider the reality of this small group of apostles and disciples commissioned uh, on the mountain in Galilee. By the way, 
the word commissioned, right? It comes from the Latin commissio, to be sent with, right? Something, no, someone to be sent with Jesus Christ. Our Lord has given them the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is the new advocate, right? Who is, is the protagonist of all that we do. So in giving of the gift of the Holy Spirit, we are sent with Jesus Christ. Now, there's something very important as we talk about the 11. You know, just uh, in case we were under the illusion that Christ only selects those who are gifted with all of the, uh, the so-called traits and charisms of an ideal candidate, whatever that means, all we have to do is look at these apostles, right? I mean, let us think about it. Could any group be any more human, ordinary? Can any group be more dysfunctional, more unpromising? How much more obvious could human frailty be than in this group? I know this is something I've talked about before in the past, and it could never be overstated. Our Lord selects quite the motley crew here, huh? He is in the midst of uh, treachery, uh, cowardice, denial, uh, to name uh, but a few of the weak points of those who would eventually become who, what, the pillars of our church. Only when the one who was called Rock realized the full significance of his denial would the ministry of church leadership and unity be placed on his shoulders. You know, James and John display naked ambition. Some would ask questions that clearly revealed the profound ignorance of the master's message and life. This is a frailty. This is brokenness. This is weakness. Right? This is certainly what our Lord wants us to see in this. Why? Because it does not matter who you are. God is calling you to him. It doesn't matter what you've been gifted with. God seeks to use those gifts. He wants your weaknesses. He wants all of it. And this is certainly the message. Now, for all that being said, what does Matthew say? He cuts through it all by saying that the 11 disciples made their way to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Now, it's interesting here. Matthew, by speaking to the 11, recalls really the tragic defection of Judas Iscariot, who, as we all know, would fail so miserably. So, in the end, in spite of all the, the blatant humanity and a brazen failure, the eleven are entrusted with the dream and mission of the risen Lord. I mean, think about that, my friends. This cowardice that I was talking about, this dysfunction, this unpromising characteristic of so many of these men, their denial, their assumption that, that they should be in a, in a place next to Jesus. What, is, what does all of this point to? It points to their weakness, and it points to us. It points to us. Because if he can build a church with those men, right? certainly he calls us to be a part of that uh, building up of his church. Now, this is a mission that is a universal mission. If you were to go to verse 18, you know, that you've risen, Jesus claims universal power in heaven and on earth. 
And since this universal power belongs to our Lord, he gives the eleven a mission that is universal. They are to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's interesting, uh, that baptismal formula, when you translate it, it is better translated as baptize into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So what's the difference? Why make the distinction? Well, it's more than just an abstract formula. It's an actual immersion into the very death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It, it designates this effect of union with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When we are baptized, we are incorporated into the very life of the Trinity, and we share in that life. This is, this is the goodness, the gratuity, the grace that God gives us. You know, we, as tradition teaches us, we receive the virtues of faith, hope, and love, virtues unmerited at baptism that, that empower us, that embolden us to share more, more fully in that Trinitarian life. In verse 20, our Lord's injunction to observe all that I have commanded you refers certainly to the moral teaching found earlier in Matthew's gospel presented in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. You know, the commandments of Jesus are the standard, not the Mosaic law. You've heard me talk about this before, and this is really important to understand the relationship between the old and new. In that great passage from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, where Jeremiah is talking about how the law in the new covenant will no longer be etched on stone, but inscribed upon the heart. Right? Yeah, I mean, are the Ten Commandments still important? Of course they are. If you were to go to the Catechism of the Catholic Church and most Christian denominations hold that those Ten Commandments are a standard. But with the new law, We are given the grace of the new covenant in baptism. We receive that grace in baptism, and that grace that we receive in baptism gives us then the strength necessary to live out those beatitudes. And that grace is what is inscribed upon our heart. It is the gift given to us that we might cry, Abba, Father. Right, that great passage from Romans 8, verses 14 and following. You did not receive the Spirit of slavery in which you fall back into fear, but the spirit of adoption in which you cry, Abba, Father. That spirit, that grace is what we received at baptism. And this is so important to the Christian journey because it is in that grace, it is due to that sacrament that we have uh, the power to cry, Abba, Father. So yes, we hold the, the Ten Commandments and the Old Law dear to our hearts, But with the new covenant, with this new dispensation of grace, we've been given something more. And how about the words, And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. They have a special ring to them, huh? I mean, they send us back to the beginning of Matthew's account when Jesus is given what name? Emmanuel. God is with us. In that name, we find the answer 
to humanity's deepest longings for God throughout the ages. If you were to look at the word itself, Emmanuel, it has this kind of, uh, we can stretch it out, a kind of fourfold meaning and purpose. Uh, it is a prayer and it is a plea on our behalf. And it is also a promise and a declaration on God's behalf. When we pronounce uh, this word, we are really praying and pleading, God, be with us. And when God speaks it, you know, the Almighty, the Eternal, the Omnipresent Creator of the world is telling us, what? I am with you in Jesus. I am with you. At the conclusion of the gospel, the name Emmanuel is alluded to when our Lord assures his disciples of his continued presence when he says, I am with you always until the end of the age. Remember some of those opening verses from the book of Acts when he charges the 12 to go out. It's really the, the glove ball fit to the, our verses today. I will give you the power of the Holy Spirit. Baptize and teach. And it is in the Eucharist that confirms these words, I am with you. Christ says to his apostles, go forth and teach all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. From Christ, the way of Christian initiation leads directly to the Eucharist. I am with you. I am with every one of you. I become part of your flesh and blood. I share your very existence. He could not make his message more clear. Live in me and I in you. This is the essence of covenant life, right? Remember what we mean by the word covenant. That word translated in the Latin means a compact agreement to come together. In a more traditional sense, when we hear this word, we think of an exchange of things. But if you've been a faithful listener to this program, you know that when you talk about the word covenant as it relates to scripture, it is not this is yours and this is mine. It is I am yours and you are mine. He in me, I in him. Our Lord says, I long to share in your very existence. Each and everything that you do, each and everything that you touch, each and everything that you say, each and everything that you hear, each and everything that you see, I am there. I wish to penetrate each and every one of your senses so that your whole existence is a participation in mine. This is his message. You know, I was talking about this at a talk recently. Oh, this is probably a few months ago now, actually. Talking about this is this absolute uh, participation that our Lord desires in our life. And someone says to me, well, you know, Dr. Holcroft, I, I don't understand that. I mean, shouldn't there be some part of our lives that, that don't totally belong to Jesus? Isn't that a bit too much? No. No, th there's nothing about Christianity. There's nothing within divine revelation that would suggest anything other than Christ's deepest longing to be with us in every way, shape, or form. 
And on the flip side, when you talk about being in relationship with Jesus Christ, putting it within the context of mystery, mindful that the word mystery means inexhaustible reality that we can never truly exhaust the depths of the mystery of God. And for that reason alone, it becomes a perpetual journey. Why would we want anything else? Are are we going to find joy somewhere out there in the material world, in the secular world? Are we going to replace our Lord with something that we think is actually going to suffice? Of course not. No. Yeah, I mean, this Christian gig is a difficult thing. But there's a reason why Paul says, pray without ceasing. Pray all the time. Remember what prayer means. Courtship with God, relationship with God. The deeper you go in prayer with Jesus Christ, the more you're going to want to spend time with Jesus Christ because he fulfills your heart's every longing. We wouldn't want to go anywhere else. So when our Lord says to us, I will be with you always until the end of the age, he is clear. I wish to share with with you everything. So much so that I will become part of your very flesh and blood. So much so that I will become one with you in the Eucharist. This is rich. This is uh, this reflection on the ascension. Any reflection on the ascension is going to be rich because what it points to is that you know salvation isn't over after the the, the crucifixion. No, the paschal mystery still needs the ascension so that he can then give us the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, only in his physical separation from the historical scene can can our Lord's spiritual union with the entire world for all time be complete. Jesus left the world one day in order to be available to all people throughout all time. He had to dissolve the bonds he had made with his friends in order to be uh, made available for everybody. We move towards heaven to the extent that we approach Jesus. And when we do so, we begin to see all of those people around us as our brothers and sisters in Christ, and an opportunity to go deeper into our faith in Jesus Christ. I have here a reflection. Uh, I've been pulling, by way of outline uh, tonight, from the likes of uh, Father Canto de Mesa. You've heard me use his name before. He's a pontifical preacher. Uh, others, uh, Father Rosica. Father Rosica had pulled up uh, Thomas Rosica editor of Salt and Light Media, he had pulled up some words from blessed uh, John Henry Newman, the very famous, popular uh, English apologist and author. He says this. uh, This is during a homily he was giving on the Ascension. I just love this. Christ's going to the Father is at once a source of sorrow because it involves his absence. And it is also a joy because it involves his presence. And out of the doctrine of his resurrection and ascension spring those Christian paradoxes often spoken of in Scripture, that we are sorrowing, yet always rejoicing, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. Less is more. Less is more. This indeed, my friends, is our state at present, huh? We have lost Christ 
and we have found him. We have seen him, not yet we discern him. We embrace his feet, yet he says to us, touch me not. How is this? It is thus. We have lost the sensible and conscious perception of him. We cannot look on him, hear him, converse with him, follow him from place to place. But, as Carl Newman noted, in a paradoxical way, we enjoy him in the spiritual, immaterial, interior, inward, mental, real sight and possession of him. A possession that can become more real and more present than that which the apostles had in the days of his flesh. Because it is spiritual. Because it is invisible. This is the gift of the ascension. This is the gift of the ascension. It frustrates us to no end that we cannot see God, see Jesus. Yet, the deeper we go in our faith, the deeper we nurture that gift we received at our baptism, that gift of faith, the more we will actually begin to see him, the more we will begin to trust him, the more we will begin to lean upon him. That being said, I thought what we could do this evening by way of close and summary is just touch upon the more traditional interpretation of these verses, the context that puts these verses in the church's mission. First, you have uh, the, the call for the church to evangelize all nations, an evangelical effort that involves more than winning individuals, an effort that entails the conversion of entire cultures, that every area of life must be brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ and in line with the gospel. Second, we have the administration of the sacraments that is essential to the church's mission and our response. You know, baptizing them, he says. You know, new converts is the first step in a long process of sanctification and participation in the, in the life of the church. Lastly, here we have the transmission of all that Christ taught and how it necessitates the assistance of the Holy Spirit who guides the church to proclaim the gospel infallibly. So these three modes, these three uh, pieces here, that all nations are to be baptized and taught. Bottom line, and this is uh, the mission of the church. Let us close in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth. 
heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.